Folks, welcome to a special edition of the Jake Feinberg Show. And I was talking to Ray Mantilla last week, and Ray said, don't you have any of my new CDs? And I said, no, I, I don't. He's like, well, give Joe Fields a call. And the name seemed to, to strike resonance with me, and I couldn't quite put a put my finger on it. But when I called Joe yesterday, Joe's like, oh, yeah, I, I own the Muse record label uh, in the early 1970s. And I said, this is just meant to be, because while, <laughs> while we, we had trendsetters like... Uh, Charlie Parker and Louis Armstrong and George Shearing and Dave Brubeck and all those guys had a huge impact on jazz the continuation of jazz the new form of of jazz the free form of jazz continued into the early 70s and was promoted on labels like the Muse label which is I think probably one of my top three or four favorite record labels. It's an honor to introduce uh, Joe Fields. Joe, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Uh, thank you, thank you. Joe, can you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, where you were at in your life in the in the early to mid-60s that sort of, were you deep into the music scene? Were you with another company? T- take us through that. Well, it's, uh, if my dates aren't exactly correct, the, basically the, uh, the names of the companies are correct. Uh, I had always been a... Uh, a, a jazz nut. Uh, I'm at this moment. I'm 82 years old. So, uh, uh, but don't let that throw you. No, you sound. Uh, you sound. You sound extremely young. Well, that's okay. I take a pill every morning, and, <laughs> and I don't look. I don't look in the wrong mirror. But uh, uh, going back to uh, uh, after law school and uh, jobs here and there, uh, I knew of friend of mine who worked for Columbia Records and he got me a job with Columbia Records and I thought I was died and went to heaven and I went through a series of interviews and eventually what it ended up being is I carried a bag selling records to retail stores in Brooklyn that's where I came from and uh, uh, through as what happens in the record business you kind of go up the ladder but jazz is always my passion Uh, I even if you go back for a minute uh, uh, my sister uh, uh, her friend used to go out with uh, uh, Billy Shaw's son Arnold Shaw and he was the manager of Dizzy Gillespie uh, and if you look to the old Dizzy stuff and there was a tune called Shaw Enough that was after after the Shaw guy and, and he used to come to the house during the Second World War and I had a little old dinky player and, and with the uh, uh, 78s and I first picked up all of the early uh, Charlie Parker and, and Dizzy stuff and even prior to that with the, the little groups with Coleman Hawkins, Ben Webster and, and uh, all that type of thing and Billy Holiday and, and so forth and so on and that's always was my passion but as time went by you know you lived with your passion, went to school, did all the other things so when the time came when I was a grown up guy and somebody came along and said how would you like to be in the record business because you love all of this music you know I said boy would I ever mm-hmm. so I got a job with Columbia Records and uh, at, at that juncture, uh, I worked there for about a year, and uh, I began to see that there were many other things in, in Columbia Records or other record companies that was happening out there, and I decided I would try to test the water. But the interesting part about it is when you, the first job there at Columbia, uh, I, I 
went on a, the first week I was on the job, it went on a plane, and I had never prior to that been on an airplane, and I went to my, into Miami, or no, maybe it was Las Vegas, no, we went to Las Vegas, and uh, uh, they had their presentation for three, three days, four days, where they took the artist out there, Goddard Lieberson was the announcer, you know, he was the master of ceremonies, he ran the whole Columbia shebang, and, and uh, uh, it was uh, uh, the parade of people, Tony Bennett all across the board, they even had Aretha Franklin under contract to them at the time, and her failed career going with a company like that before she made the leap to Atlantic, and uh, uh, at, at that juncture, it was... I, I met Clive Davis there when he was a trainee, and and the uh, the guy that ran Blue Note, his name escapes me now. When he was a trainee, so it was really early time, and and getting out from there, I I then got a job in no particular way of of with um, uh, with Sue Records, S U E. Yeah, no, I I have a a Jimmy McGriff record on Sue. That's it. I got a woman. And and it, it was with Sue for a little while. With they had there with the side from the Griff, that Ike and Tina Turner, and and a lot of other R and B stuff. Joey was the first black entrepreneur. He he preceded Barry Gordy, uh, uh, and in turn, the only way I got that job there real quick is that uh, he needed somebody that understood the record business because I I used to go on a plane every week and I'd go out for the company that I worked with uh, uh, and go see the distributors, work the town, see the see the stores, go see the radio people. So I really got a, a, a basic fundamental in what to do in the record business. And that went through with the prestige label I worked for for five years. Uh, uh, the Columbia people was a couple of years. Uh, I worked for London Records where I handled their single records with Anthony Newley, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And till finally, uh, I, I went to work for a guy by the name of Neil Bogart. And by this time, I was a record business veteran. He, and he was part of this Kamasutra Buddha Records. And Buddha Records was known for uh, all the yummy, yummy bubblegum music, and Kamasutra was known for the love and spoonful and that type of thing. Uh, but my passion for the jazz was still there. And, and one year, I went up to Newport, and I saw the freaks come over the wall and, and chop at the piano, and the, the fathers at Newport, the jazz festival, they decided that George Ween's Newport didn't belong in, in Newport any longer, and they banned them. In the meantime, what had taken place, from what I gather, I'm not sure this is a fact, that he, George, George had taken advances from whether it was Columbia or RCA or whatever other big company at the time, and he decided he would put his Newport Festival on in New York. But there was an argument. They didn't want to put up any more money, and George already, the money was gone. So I saw the breach, and I went to this Neil Bogart guy. There's a book or so about him, because he was the fellow that went on uh, to do um, a lot of other things with uh, uh, Casablanca label and all of that, and he died very young. But in any event, um, uh, I, I went to George, and, and I filled the breach, and we recorded Newport in New York. I think that was around 1970, or thereabouts. And, uh, uh, that, and I put that out on, I think it was the Cobblestone label, or maybe it was on Boot, I'm really not sure. No, 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 I, I just, it's funny, I just, uh, Ira Gittler wrote the liner notes for that, and, uh, and I, I just picked up a copy, it was on Cobblestone. 
Well, that's, that's yeah. Well, it, then it was cobblestone, and and Neil uh, and those fellas, they. Uh, uh, if the truth be known, there was eight-track tape at the time. Am I going back in time? I love it. And, and what <laughs> they had was advances. This may seem a little too uh, academic, but they had they got advances from the companies, a company that was putting out eight-track tapes. And Neil and Buddha Records, uh, uh, they had a lot of hits and things. So they gave them so many dollars per record. And... Uh, uh, it was a large advance for a lot of records. So Neil came to me and he said, look, he says, you've been wanting to do this jazz thing. I says, why don't you go out, I'll give you a budget. You go out and we'll make another label called Cobblestone. And uh, I've been bugging him. And he says, you go ahead and, and you put together these things. So at a, uh, a club on West 4th Street, I think it was, uh, that was where Bob Dylan had started, uh, uh, was called Folk City, Gertie's Folk City. I went to the owner and I, I got a commitment from him for eight weeks. We then called it Buddha's Jazz City. We got a flag, we did the whole thing, and there is where I recorded Pat Martino, uh, uh, Alan Zoom Sims, uh, I think it was Jimmy Heath, and a bunch of other things that came out on a cobblestone label. And part of the cap of all of that was uh, later on, of course, was the Newport in New York, uh, all on the cobblestone label. But as happens in the record business, you can be hot for a period of time. And while I was at Buddha, I had maybe 60, 60 gold singles and maybe a dozen gold albums with Curtis Mayfield and, and Melanie and, and all of those kind of things. And uh, uh, as good as that was, the company then began to shake. And as it as it sort of went downhill and Neil decided he was going to the West Coast, I told him, listen, I said, I want to stay in the jazz business. I said, I'll... I'll take the contracts from you for all of the people that I had signed there, and I'll pay you dollar for dollar on what it costs the company for all of those cobblestone things, or most of them. Some they retained. And I went out in March of 73, and I started the uh, Muse label, M-U-S-E. And uh, with those records and, and uh, uh, Al Collins and Sims and Sonny Stitt, oh, I had bunch of really good Sonny Stitt stuff and whoever who was there at the at the early time and a lot of things you talked about yesterday yeah no uh, Joe I, I Joe want Chambers Joe Chambers uh, 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 the the, um, the Grubbs brothers uh, uh, things I Donato Diodato uh, with those people that you had reminded me you jogged my memory of those things of course I, I had signed Pat again I, I think Houston person came along uh, and so forth and so on and that that's what I had done starting in March of 73. But as I also had told you yesterday, it was it was the kind of thing that uh, I was sort of anonymous. I was doing it. I wanted to do it. Uh, I didn't look particularly, I'm not vain glory, if that's the word. Uh, I, I wasn't looking for that, frankly. I was, I was looking to make a living and stay in the record business and uh, uh, recognizing of what I thought was good music and uh, was a continuation. But even prior to that, I left out one really vital chapter, the chapter where I, I went with the prestige records with Bob Weinstock. And that really was my primer for uh, doing what I did uh, uh, prior to even Buddha records. I, I worked for prestige prior to Buddha. That's where my sequence got a little bit backwards. And with the five years there, having uh, records like Groove Holmes, Jack McDuff, uh, Groove Holmes had a number one record, 
with his misty and and so forth and so on i had five great years of i got to know the record business the jazz record business very well by continuing that same traveling to cities seeing people talking to the jocks you know uh, uh, seeing the music friends with musicians from coast to coast uh, and so forth and so on and and that was it so to me it was a natural and uh, what also made it for me i had become very good friends with distributors and that was the way records were 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 distributed in those days by independent distributors you would have one in new york or many in New York, but they covered the New York area, one in Philadelphia, one in Baltimore, they covered Baltimore, Washington, Atlanta, so forth and so on. That was the main cities. Those were the hubs of where records sold. And uh, those people got to know me very well, and I got to know them very well. So with no money, I, I cobbled together some okays from some of these people that knew me very well, and uh, I got advances from them, uh, shipped them records, and they paid me before it was due, and that gave me the money to turn over, turn over, turn over, and so I was able to continue doing what I was doing, and that was the gist of it. So the rest has been kind of like a, a glorious ride. I always made a living doing it, uh, uh, and uh, it, it was absolutely fun. It was better than working, I always used to say, and it still is better than working. I wanted to <laughs> I wanted to read something that you wrote uh and uh, and see and get your take on it. You because uh, you talked about sort of these um, these different hubs on the in the uh, in the Northeast and uh, say every big city boasts a music scene of outstanding artists who rarely achieve national recognition. They do become local legends, though, as traveling musicians sing the praises of local players they meet on tour. The word legend should not conjure up a picture of an old player. Its meaning, according to Webster's, is a person that inspires legends. In the case of the musicians involved in this work, Eddie Green, Odeon Pope, Sherman Ferguson, and Al Johnson, they were local players, quite young, who inspired the term local legend. On this album, you can hear four of Philadelphia's legends make first-class music. My question for you is, can you talk about this band, the guys that were in the band, and how they worked together with Pat Martino, because... Uh, on some of those later prestige, uh, the early '70s prestige albums, they were playing with Pat, and then obviously those Catalyst albums on the early the, on the Muse label were were fantastic. And um, just talk about how you cultivated that, how you heard about them, and then ultimately the session itself. Well, you know, when 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 you see a movie and somebody walks into a club and they see somebody on stage in the movie, they go, oh my God, I can make you a star or what have you. That's a fiction total and complete. It, it is a screenwriter's fantasy. Yeah. What, what really does happen is just like when you were a kid and you played ball, you knew when you went to the schoolyard or wherever you played, you gathered to play ball, you know who was going to play right field, okay? Right. And who was going to be the catcher. Uh -huh. But you also knew who was going to be the shortstop and who would bat fourth. Well, musicians are no different than kids in the schoolyard. They know who's good. They really know who's good. A young player can come to town, you wonder how they got to where they went so quickly. How does a, a hot young drummer suddenly get gigs with the bigger guys? Because people just, in, in, in the circumstance there, it's like a, a magic language. They know. And, and I was privy to those kind of things. And I, it kind of fed into me. Well, you know, not all of those legends ever got 
out of it. The, the one guy in Chicago never left Chicago. Oh, I can't think of his name. He's still playing. Uh... Uh, but in any event, just going back to Boston, for instance, I recorded Ricky Ford as, as a 16, 17-year-old with Jeff Keezer, no less, and uh, uh, the hot trumpet player today, uh, the biggest trumpet player in, in, uh, in the jazz universe, <clears throat> I think he still records for RCA, uh, Roy Hargrove. Mm -hmm. uh, and and some, of the, some of those fellas, uh, uh, when they came and did the Ricky Ford with Jeff Keezer and, and Roy Hargrove uh, at, at Rudy Van Gelder's, uh, they virtually were three unknowns. Ricky had one or two records before, but uh, Ricky brought those two kids with me because he knew about them in Boston. They were going to the music school up there, and Ricky was a hotshot legend, uh, a black kid, and he played uh, in a club there on a regular basis, and he was tearing the house down. And uh, I recorded him. As time went by, whatever happened to Ricky, his writing kind of fell off and the like, and he never... I thought ever maximized his uh, his potential, but all of those kind of players there in every town you had guys like that. They escape me now, but Chicago was loaded with them. Uh, a place like St. Louis had a couple. You know, it was that type of thing. And why did they be, were undiscovered? Because as the companies got, as companies were bigger, and they they had a more of a national approach like Blue Note and The Prestige and the, uh, some of the other larger, ABC, whatever the name of their company was, and a couple of the other major companies had uh, jazz labels as such. They would look for the artists with the most cachet, people who would know them. They signed them and they recorded them. And these fellows were very, very let's say high priced for the time, certainly. And uh, uh, I had no way to basically compete with them. So my thing wasn't so much for the what was shiny on the outside, even though those players were great. My thing was to find those people that were really wonderful and that had not been exposed yet. And that way I was able to make a marriage. But it not only didn't always go, you know, in that way. Uh, of course, you know, Pat and Pat Martino and, and uh, uh, the Stitz and uh, uh, Al Collins and Sims and, and a variety of other things during the years. And Houston Person has been a constant for me. And later on, it was David Fathead Newman. So people with high profile, and, and they stuck with me, and, and uh, they were people that uh, uh, made great music, and that was the core of the company. But I never... I never got the Oscar Petersons. Maybe that makes the best example. No, but I, 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 I Joe, I, I, what I'm trying to get at here is that this this idea of. I mean that's what made that's what's most endearing to me about the about the Muse label is that it seems to um, there was a real I mean you you would maybe put on some real sort of someone with with cachet but then surround them with other heady cats local cats like this Catalyst band you know and and my question you know you go to the DJs um, did you actually go into the I mean were these guys playing uh, at uh, at certain clubs and then you would go. Well, in most cases, those fellas didn't travel. They couldn't get booked because they were only known in one town. It was hard for Booker to get uh, four guys, five guys, and send them to another town type thing. That that part was difficult. Uh, on the other side, uh, over the years, I had uh, uh, built up a, 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 I don't want to use the word following, a, a relationship, I should say, uh, with the 
major uh, radio people across the country. Now, it was a little different then. And if you go back in time, you had AM radio. And somebody like Sid McCoy at WCFL in Chicago, if he played a record, I would go to see him at night. He'd had a night show. I'd go up, I'd bring him the record, and he'd put the record on. If you were in New Orleans, you could hear... Sid McCoy. Mm. There was a uh, there was a radio station. I forget the name of it in Rochester, New York, and I forget the guy's name. That covered uh, the greater part of uh, uh, of the Northeast. A guy in New Orleans. Uh, it, it was sponsored by American Airlines. That covered up to the uh, I forget the name of it. It, it was those clear channel kind of uh, AM radio stations. That station from New Orleans got as far as the Rocky Mountains on the left, and you can catch them literally on all the way up in New York on a clear night. <laughs> Unbelievable. The coverage of those handful of people was so pronounced that if, if you had those handful of people, you had yourself the airplay on those particular items. You know, yeah, no, I, I mean, that's, I remember Barry Miles talking to me about that radio station in Rochester and how much Donald Fagan actually was influenced by the fact that, I mean, the, whoever the DJ was from midnight to six in the morning would just play straight jazz. And, that's, you, yes, and, that's you, right. and you could pick that's it up right. all the way up and down the Northeast Corridor. Yep. It's incredible. I mean, and that, and I talked to Larry Taylor, who ran the jazz workshop in Paul's Mall, and he said that really... It was, I mean, what crippled the the jazz uh, the jazz jazz industry was just the idea of the uh, the lack of accessibility on the radio. But the the companies cut it off, and the politicians actually um, really uh, they chopped up the the radio stations and they made it a lot more commercialized. And you couldn't get those sounds, like you said, to the Rocky Mountains on a clear night. You know, and well, what what did come in if you, if you if you watched it. Remember, I, I then later on with the, the rock and roll stuff and all of that, what, what, what did begin to happen was FM radio came right. in and it became a sensation because the, the jock with the whole uh, drug culture, they could play 12-minute tunes and things of that nature. And uh, uh, it ended up that uh, uh, they drew the listeners over to FM. It was better and AM kind of be, became, you know, pushed to the back of back of the stove, so to speak, and uh, uh, it, it then was a, a little more difficult. Uh, there was a lot of FM stations, and then NPR came along, and then college radio and the like, so it, it began to be a whole lot more splintered in, in that way. And and what happened what happened today then, uh, or what happened going back then uh, on radio, it, it, it then was then bought up from having a, a very strong individual that had chains of radio stations and they had their formats and they knew what they were doing. They were radio people, their names escaped me, and they shaped radio stations just like they were before. They gave a variety of different types of things and then it became formatted. And it ended up that then the suits came in uh, having to do with FM radio, and they decided uh, they could more or less play the hits, and with the hits, uh, we sort of designate a certain uh, uh, section of the population, like women from 18 to 32, and if we play just this and this during the day, uh, and that's the kind of music we'll give them, we can sell advertising to the people that that, that want to cater to those that audience so they grabbed the audience and then sold the advertising but what that did for those who were interested in music it kind of splintered the whole thing right and uh, and 
uh, when you when you found an art form like jazz and it, it was uh, not readily available and and you found everything else on on FM coming along and you had a sort of hunt for it at either end of the dial it became difficult yet give the credit where once you get infected with the with the art of jazz and listening to it uh, it stays with you and and the beautiful part about it too is you may learn in other venues or in other kinds of musics but eventually inevitably as you mature and if your ears are open you will get and find something improvisational in some manner shape or form in that art form that will appeal to you uh it and all the things that are made under the umbrella now called jazz uh, uh not everybody embraces there's a lot of music that i won't record and put out uh and we can go into into that whole kind of a thing where a lot of players these days will play for their peers uh they're in a in a way looking for approval by people who are other musicians you can't i go to clubs just to see certain people and it uh when I walk out of it, I says, what the hell does the guy do? Could I ever listen to that more than once? Right. Something that I embrace? You know, so th- there's so much going on, and, and this is in any art in that respect, the same as in, in, in fine arts of sorts, but it's, it's really grabbed onto the jazz scene. But the true jazz and what people want to hear and what people go to see, that hasn't gone away. It really, really hasn't. Joe, I got to be honest. I, I want to I get your take on this. I mean, I, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that when you go back in time, you know, I was interviewing Nat Hentoff, and he, he, he talked about Woody Shaw literally playing his life story. These guys had very rough lives, it's, and, 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 and it was a testament to their to their beings as human, I mean, they were, they had overcome a lot. And I think that in jazz, if you want, like you said, am I ever going to listen to that more than once? I don't see, I don't see the new generation, the new generation having to deal with the kind of adversity that the, that this, this generation, the Muse label generation guys were dealing with. I mean, those guys dealt with, um, with a lot of stuff and it was, it might've been simpler but it was more complicated in some ways but they were telling their life story therefore the music was more substantive that that part probably with, with artists certain artists may be very very true and in turn there are a lot of young people here who are really fine musicians that hopefully they wouldn't have to go through the pain that a Woody Shaw did. And they talk about Woody Shaw, talk about local legends. I would go out to the West Coast to work the West Coast. I get to San Francisco, I go to the Keystone Corner, and I would see Woody. And I loved him, and I couldn't figure out why he wasn't really happening. So I buttonholed him one night. I says, when you get to New York, I says, if you ever get to New York, I says, let's see if we can get together. So uh, I kind of forgot about it. And one day, uh, I was in a little office on 71st Street, not too far from where I am now, and and we hear a knock on the door. The secretary opens up the door, and she sees this guy outside there. She wanted to shut the door, but she opened the door, and Woody came in. Woody had very poor eyesight, mm-hmm. and it, it, he used to look like he was always sort of drunk, and he wasn't. He just had trouble maneuvering. Uh, he seemed like he rocked on his feet. So we went, we talked, and he, he was so full of ideas and one thing and another. We went in, we did our first records, and and uh, uh, I signed them, and we did all the things that we had to do. And what I had done with Woody, uh, uh, 
I, I then introduced him to Michael Cascuna, and then I had Michael Cascuna be the producer on some of Woody's stuff. And when my contract ran out, I realized that at this point in time, I wasn't going to be able to hold Woody. And uh, Woody then went over to Blue Note, and Michael went with him as the producer. And that was Michael's uh, uh, initiation into the Blue Note family over there uh, uh, with Bruce Lundball. That was the name of the guy I couldn't think of that I met at Columbia Records years before. And he became part and parcel of that operation. And Woody, of course, did all the things that he did with, with Blue Note. But Woody, unfortunately, had a terrible problem that he couldn't overcome, and that's that his life ended much, much too short. Well, you know, <coughs> I remember uh, finding that epic Muse uh, album, Woody's first album called Moon Train. Uh, That's right. An amazing album with uh, Alan Gums on there and Steve Turay. Um, and, and and the thing about Woody, and I talked to see, I have, I, I, I've also been, been very connected to the West Coast Cats, uh, guys like uh, Henry Franklin, the skipper, and, uh, you know, he passed, but uh, Sonship Woody Theus, you know, uh, Oren Keepnews had really locked Woody in. Woody did a couple of great albums on the contemporary label, um, but, but you know, he can't, He always, you know, to me, I when I first heard Woody's sound, you know, maybe five, six years ago, I couldn't figure it out. I, I didn't really want to hear it. And then, the more I listened to him, I mean, by he, if there's any trumpet player that I want to turn to, it's him. I love, yeah. I love, he just plays, like, 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 uh, Nat Hentoff said, he goes, he played as if he was telling his life story, and I know he had a lot of pain, and, um, and he died on, on the subway, and, uh, yeah. you know, and, and there were so many of these guys, I mean, you know, you talk about these, uh, uh, the, the, the foundation that Dizzy set up, that Dizzy wanted to set up and did set up with Inglewood Hospital to, to help take care of the guys who didn't have social security or pensions or were not as fortunate as he was. Um, really, um, but getting back to the, the substantive nature of, of jazz, I mean, like, you know, at that, in that early seventies time, how much of the muse label, you know, Don Umramao, uh, I know I'm butchering his name, but you know, the, 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 the Donato Diodato and the, and the, these albums, you would bring on all sorts of, of ethnic cats. I mean, you'd have, you'd have black, you'd have Chicano, you'd have Brazilian, you'd have, you know, it was, it was this melting pot and it was almost like, Don't listen. Don't forget about Carlos Garnett. <laughs> yeah. Black love, right? That's right. You know, what I'm trying to say, Joe, is like, it seemed to me, and this is sort of a, a take on Norman Grands too, it's not about the money, it's what the label stood for. What did Muse, isn't that what Muse, Muse was about standing for a certain sound type of music. It, it wasn't necessarily about grossing massive dollars. Well, the, the, the bottom line is I had no particular preconceived notion. Uh, and in turn, even though I, you know, people could talk about the two guys that ran Blue Note, they, they understood where they were going and what they were doing. The truth of the matter is, if, if you are uh, uh, involved in something like this, uh, you literally careen from one year to the next, and you literally go by your instinct. Uh, I liked what I heard on Woody Show. Maybe that harkens back to all of the years as a kid that I was listening to music and how maybe uh, I evolved internally without even knowing it. Why did Woody attract me? Don't ask me why. <laughs> you know, I, I, I liked what he did. Other guys can explain it uh, with the flatted fifths and he made different changes and so forth and so on. He was about to use the trombone and the trumpet to, to uh, 
a great degree in a, in a different way, the way he framed this group. In fact, I'm just finishing, just finished, it will be out in, in January, Steve Touré, and it's dedicated to Woody Shaw. That's awesome. Which is, you know, which is kind of interesting in that respect. So he never forgot his mentoring from Woody Shaw in that way. And in Woody's case, uh, Woody got was locked up, and he was locked up to overcome his addiction. And uh, I would get. They, he had a phone, and and he would call every day, and uh, I would put the phone down and come back a half hour. He was still rambling on. Then he got better enough, and when he got better enough, they left him out one night to go. They didn't leave, let him out. They put him in a car with somebody, whoever, whatever the story was. They drove him over to the to the Vanguard or the or whatever the club was, and he got out and to see the music. It was part of the rehab situation. He never he never got back into the car. He went over to Brooklyn to score, and then he got literally held up or what have you, and got killed on a subway. Oh. It, that was it. Was just that was just a terrible, terrible waste. But there is where his addiction then goes went from an earlier upset time. He was married, uh, and his wife ended up with uh, uh, Dexter Gordon, and uh, Woody had a very fragile psyche, uh, and that kind of thing was very upsetting. And perhaps earlier, he had a lot of very overachieving brothers. He came from a very good family. And you always wondered why, why? And Woody was very bright, he had this slight physical problem with his eyes, but a lot of people have those kind of things, and he just was not able to overcome. I guess God gave him the skill and what he had to do. No, there's no doubt. I mean, listen, the skipper, Henry Franklin, told me that on their... I mean, I, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to this album, because he writes a song about his divorce from his wife called Love for the One You Can't Have, and it's on an album called Song of Songs. Woodrow Theus, Sonship, was the drummer on that album. Uh, Woody went out to Los Angeles. He wanted to cut a record. He asked the skipper to get a hold of Sonship. Sonship was meditating for like two or three days until they could finally get a hold of him. They brought in two drummers during that time. It didn't work out. They finally brought Sonship in. George Cables was on the album. Ramon Morris was on the album. Manny Boyd was on the album. And Henry said that when they got into the studio and they finally, he wanted Sonship, and when he finally got Sonship on drums... He, he made five tunes on that album, and they were all out of his head. They all came out of his head. He was a genius. You know, and it's, it's you know, but with that, with that, when your brain works that quickly and you're that brilliant, you're also, uh, you know, uh, susceptible to, to paranoia and schizophrenia. And then on top of that, I mean, I'm a teacher of the visually impaired. And uh, when you are losing your vision, it's also very unnerving. And, and, and he had, um, you know, depth perception issues, and he also had periphery issues. So, you know, I mean, it, it, it but it, it's, it, I just look at Woody and I say to myself, he's one of the cats that has put into me this spirituality and this push to, to highlight and go back and uncover some of this genius stuff that was going on before the industry changed so dramatically. And that, in fairness to, to younger players now, I also, it's not just about substantive lives. It, the, the, the industry is, is, it has changed so fundamentally, and you know this, you're still in it. Uh, it's harder to, um, it's just harder to, to make a living, uh, you know, we, we, there, there are no smaller labels now. Everything's a bottom line. Um, well, the reason there are no smaller labels is because the stores disappeared. Uh, the small stores disappeared. Uh, uh, it, it ended up that when people can download and steal music, unfortunately, uh, there's 
more music around than ever before. But uh, people buy tracks. They don't buy. They don't download full records. There's no place to put your hard CDs. Yet I will tell you, as of this moment, seventy percent of our business, seventy percent of our gross dollars are done on CDs. Thirty percent on downloads. And the downloads, most of those would be single tracks. So suddenly, if you're from a business point of view, your gross has just plummeted. Aside from the normal uh, 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 in half of what the business once was, you know, there are so many other factors that are out there with with people have a time that they spend in other ways. This is a much too sophisticated and involved subject to even uh, talk about. But the reality of it is record business has sunk to this particular level. Uh, and what what I had to do, this may sound nuts and bolts, but we had to change from, uh, as Orrin Keith News, when he, put, when he put out the Woody Shaw stuff, he was a pure producer. That's all he lived with. On the other side of the coin, the records would then go someplace else to be designed, to be uh, pressed, and then to be sold and promoted and the like. Uh, you can't do that and, and stay around. Uh, those people like that are gone. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to have a, a totally integrated situation to where, in, in a small way, we go from signing the artist to, you know, uh, putting his records her records out on a worldwide basis. There's a handful of people here, but if you and but everybody, let's say, does that. But the the the, the if you want to call it the promotion or the publicity and all of the rest of that that goes to it, if you don't do that, there are so many things happening in the world. Your voice is so small that you literally have to you know shout <laughs> as loud as you can in any way that you can. And uh, uh, there's a lot of radio stations that are playing music now uh, and they service local particular regional kind of areas and one of the uh, things that for the jazz people there's a, a, a chart called Jazz Week you know about it I don't uh, well J Jazz Week is an online jazz album chart it's a top 50 and of the top 50 it's all new releases and Jazz Week buys their information, it's a little involved, buys their information from an outfit called Media Guide. Media Guide was a company funded by the uh, publishers of, uh, big publishers that have all the great songs. And what they wanted to know is where and what music was being played on the radio in this country. And Media Guide doesn't only clock what's on jazz radio, they clock what's on all radio and you send your new releases and they have downloaded literally all of your whole catalog and they they record the first 10 seconds and it goes out onto various towers that are used for various things for 90% of the country and uh, if that record is played in Tucson uh, that record will be picked up by this tower that then it will be reported or it'll be gathered by media guide. And uh, I can tell you from what happens there, what station, where, what time, what track it was played. And at the end of the week, uh, uh, Jazz Week buys the information and then uh, prints a sheet based on the amount of spins that the, that the uh, record actually got. So, for instance, after two weeks, I put out a Pat Martino, his first record in five years. Uh, 
He went from number 20 in spins. In his second week on the chart, he went to number one. Now, Pat gathered last week 231 spins. Previous week was 114 spins. That type of thing. And uh, uh, that's the way that people clock the new release. Now, that doesn't mean it's available everywhere, and that doesn't mean uh, it's selling or anything like that on, on the more mundane, trite business type of thing. But you do know, and, and there are, uh, we service maybe 110, 120, maybe 130 different radio stations. Not all are, are 24-hour jazz stations, as you know, very few of those exist. But uh, there are the key stations in the key markets all over the country. And uh, people who are, are really kind of gleaning what makes sense for a, a core audience are, are radio people. You know, you go, to a, you go to a town and you talk to a jock, he knows. He's been listening. He has the same opinions of you or different, but at least you're in the same boat. Now, there were all these hundreds of, of, of jocks around the country that uh, when the radio station that they're working for, if they see what the new releases are, they make their own judgment. Right. They put it on and don't put it on. So we, we have had, if you want to call it, I don't want to use the word talent, the instinct to put out things like Pat Martino, Houston Person, I'm reading down now, Freddie Cole, Joey DeFrancesca, Mike LaDon, Cedar Walton, Giacomo Gates doing Gil Scott Heron, Kenny Burrell. I got eight things on a current top 50 chart. It's not an accident. These things are worked and done and talked about. So if, if you, and that music, all of those records, uh, I think they would, should withstand, or many of them, the test of time. The same way that you embraced, we embraced what went on in the 70s, the people and the young kids, or even, you know, people that are just discovering it, they get involved in these these sounds. And the sounds aren't too far away from what we're talking about from the 70s. That That's the hard main core of the music. It's not off the wall. It's not beeps and squeaks. It's, it's to a certain degree melodic. It, it musically is, is, is diverse. It's interesting. And it's not the same. Each record is different, and every guy plays different. Every lady sings different. Uh, uh, Joe, uh, Joe, you know, I, I uh, this is this is fantastic uh, uh, information for me uh, to gather. And I just, I, I'm going back to one thing you said earlier. Uh, one reason <coughs> is that I can hold the records. I can see, like you said, it was passed around. It went somewhere for the art. It went somewhere for the design. It went somewhere to the. I mean, there was so much care and love. It wasn't. It. It. it uh, it just seemed like, again, maybe it's a, it, again, it's history to me. And it's, it, so there's a fantasy aspect to it. But, um, uh, it, it strikes me as, um, we were just not as politically correct a society as we are now. And, uh, it, 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 it was a beautiful time. And I'm just so happy, Joe, that you had the passion and, and you, you were right place, right time, my friend. And, and, uh, and the stuff that you've done, um, you know, uh, has ha, will stand the test of time. Um, and I'm, you know, I, I I admit I'm in a little bit of a time warp, but at the same time, my goal is to archive and interview as many people who were uh, who were involved during this incredible period of uh, uh, really the, what I consider to be the last generation of jazz. And I want to see a comeback, uh, and and in, in any way, shape, or form. Um, so the information you provide. Let me, let me say this: it it, it 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 has evolved. It hasn't gone away. It really hasn't. It it 
it isn't as obvious as it was in the 70s because we discussed, you know, that kind of radio and the like. But, you know, a, a, a guitar player like Pat Martino, his chops are still great, that type of thing. Uh, uh, Joey D. Francesca certainly is in line with the same organ players as Groove Holmes or Jack McDuff or Jimmy Smith, certainly. You know, so there's there's the form in that situation that, that continues. And the same romance, uh, Tom Harrow, very underrated. But there, that same romance that you had in the 70s, uh, that romance still holds true for those who are discovering and hearing for the first time. Believe me. It, you know, everybody has their time, and their time they hold absolutely dear. Right. And I think you're correct, because somebody, and I told you this yesterday, somebody just wrote a book about the 70s. And the, uh, uh, his uh, uh, name, his second name is Hermes, H-E-R-M-E-S, just like Hermes, the, the French uh, perfume maker or whatever, scarf maker. And there's a quote, which is something having to do with burning love or something like that. And, and the, the, the name of, of that name of the book has nothing to do which would indicate it from the 70s but it's a new release and it, it, it cross-references all of what went on musically in the 70s and I believe if we, if we both live long enough we'll hear or write somebody will be writing about what happened in, in the in the uh, uh, the late 2010 and 11 yeah I know right right on right no I, I listen I'm listen you're more tapped in than I am I just I look at it and I say, holy cow, you know, the Montgomery Brothers, George Shearing, Kenny Burrell, Jimmy Smith, Richard Groove Holmes, Joe Pass, uh, Catalyst, Pat Martin. I mean, it, you know, I, I'm with you. I, I'm with you about DeFrancesco uh, and, and Pat and those guys. It was just, it was a multitude of, le- the leadership was incredible. Dizzy, James Moody. Uh, you know, even guys that you never were able to record with, Eric Kloss, uh, you know, it just seemed there were urban centers in each part of the country, whether it was the Pennsylvania, uh, Pittsburgh connections, it was New York, Boston, it was Houston with the Crusaders, the West Coast. There was just these, uh, it's really more about an organic sort of substantive movement of the uh, the urban sound. Uh, and um, Questionably. You know, and Joe, I, I, uh, listen, I, I, we, we can pick this up in part two. I, 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 it's, it's an honor to talk to you, and, um, you know, I hope that um, when I bring my family back for, for Thanksgiving, maybe we could try to meet up in the city at some point. It'd be, it'd be great to meet up. Okay. Well, well, just one, one, you know, everything, one thing always leads to the other. One of the things, too, remember, there was a whole input uh, in jazz, the black musicians in jazz, and they, too, had a different background, and they brought uh, what they brought to the game and, and how that sort of metamorphosed to that degree and so forth and so on. And the same goes for, you know, certain sports and things of that nature. Uh, uh, that's kind of gotten muted to a certain degree, but that's a story for another day. Joe, I can't thank you enough for being part of the program, and I look forward to our continued continuing collaboration. Very good. I hope I didn't occupy too much space. Absolutely not, my friend. Take care. You bet. Bye-bye.